morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning and to have the opportunity to be with you and to share this morning. Uh, uh, Brian and and uh, several other people are down in uh, in the Caribbean enjoying the beautiful weather there, but more significantly involved in Black Box International. Uh, I serve on the board of Black Box International as well and with Wade Landers and others and grateful for the opportunity to to partner with him as he is doing the work there and as uh, you all are meeting here. Uh, Tulsa is a very uh, important town to Carol and I. Uh, Carol grew up here in Tulsa, uh, went to, uh, what is it, honey, East uh, East Central High School? Yeah, that one, the round one. Anyway, she went there like the first year it was opened. Or, um, Oops, I shouldn't say things like that. But... Uh, <laughs> Oh boy, I'm dying already. But uh, no, uh, we we've been to Tulsa. Driving down here this morning is like very nostalgic for us, and we we love uh, love the uh, the city here. But uh, more importantly, we have a lot of memories of the church here at Highland Park, and also at East Tulsa, where we were married many years ago. And uh, uh, come, we came and visit here frequently. And I remember. I think this is the same. It's been it's a lot different looking, but the the similar space. I remember. Uh, telling the the church here about our plans to go uh, live and work in the country of Chile in South America, and uh, Brother J. Russell Moore, some of you know who that is, uh, was retired at that time and was listening to us, and he stood up in the middle of the our little presentation. This back in the old days, guys, you guys, you know, slides at night and slide projectors and things that don't exist anymore. I don't think. Not sure they ever existed. But anyway, we would show our pictures, and Brother Moore stood up in the middle of it and said, I want to make a proposal. You know, he'd do this a lot. I want to make a proposal. I want to propose that uh, the church take the money they've been giving to my wife and I to manage our closing years here and give it to this young couple. And I stood up and said, no way are you going to do that. <laughs> but uh, that's just a great, some great memories of, of days gone by and... Uh, uh, Highland Park actually supported Carol and I while we were in Chile uh, quite a few years ago. And so grateful for that, grateful for uh, the family, Jennings family, and our deep friendship with them over many years. And I share in the eldership at College Heights with Steve, and uh, a lot of you know Steve and Jane, I'm sure. But uh, we're glad for uh, the ways in which the Lord weaves our lives together. It is remarkable. This morning, if you've got your Bibles, uh, you're in Jonah, I know, and we're in Jonah chapter 3. Now, Jonah chapter 3 is a very interesting text, and I hope that you can see um, a little more clearly God's heart uh, through this text and through what it is that uh, we are learning about him and his heart for the nations. But uh, the uh, story today in Jonah 3 opens with a changed perspective, what I would call it, as far as uh, Jonah is concerned. Well, hi, Matt. How are you, brother? And uh, sorry, I'm just kind of informal. But uh, as far as Jonah is concerned, uh, the closing verse of uh, chapter 2 is the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah uh, up on the dry land. And then comes chapter 3. And chapter 3 starts by saying this, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, dude. Are you paying attention to me now? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, think about that. Are you paying attention to me now? It doesn't say that in the Bible. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. What we have in this uh, incredible text and this incredible story that uh, Scripture is unfolding for us 
uh, kind of reminds me of a, an old television program I watched when I was much, much younger. And some of you have seen the movies of Mission Impossible, and uh, uh, you're familiar with some of the what lies behind uh, the Mission Impossible idea. The old television program, the movies are okay, but the old television program with Peter Graves and Martin Landau and those guys and the crazy things that they would do uh, in my pre-computer enhanced uh, era, you might say, I was just like, whoa, that was cool. How did they do that? And you remember quite clearly how in the beginning of the program or the movie that uh, the... Uh, the agent would listen to a recording or get some kind of message, and the message would essentially say at the end of it, uh, or at the beginning of it, your mission, should you decide to accept, you know, and then it explains what's going to happen, which is some impossible mission, and then, and then this message will self-destruct in 10 seconds, you know, and pfft, you know, in the old days, I think it was a little cassette recorder, but, <laughs> okay, humor me here, okay, <laughs> I am old, but, uh, uh, it's the same basic idea, and I remember thinking a few times that the, the guy, the voice, whoever that was, the voice at the other end of that uh, message that was being given, uh, could have just as easily said, uh, you know, that uh, the mission, should you decide to accept it, and we all know, because we're watching the program, we all know that you will accept the mission, uh, could have just as easily said that, and you, honestly, that's a little bit of where you are with Jonah here. Uh, God is saying to him, Jonah, uh, we've been through a little bit here, you know, with the, the boat and the running away and the jumping over and getting thrown overboard and getting swallowed by the fish and you crying out to me and the fish uh, regurgitating you onto the beach. Uh, can we have a conversation now? Are you tracking with me on that? I mean, I think I have your attention. And Jonah, I think, would have, would have answered, clearly, you have my attention, Lord. Uh, not very long ago, Carol and I, just a few weeks ago, actually, were in the city of Sarajevo in Bosnia. And while we were there, we wandered into this church that was a Croatian church, a Catholic church. And uh, there inside, I saw this piece of artwork that had a, a uh, painting of Jonah. Uh, it's not, yeah, the, the fish has got some serious teeth. But uh, uh, I, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Of course, it's kind of a collage of the whole story of Jonah, but at the same time, uh, it demonstrates like his, uh, his, that God has his attention. And uh, people, God is serious about this. <laughs> I said something there, I hope you're listening. I said, God is serious about the task that he gives his church. God is serious about the task he gives his messenger. God is serious about his approach and what this looks like. And so when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah... Did you notice, a second time, a second time, God, I would think, would, would get, you know, you would expect people to pay attention the first time. But being a teacher, I know that isn't true. <laughs> and being a student. Uh, what God is saying here, first off, in, in recommissioning Jonah and rekindling uh, the call of Jonah, uh, God is saying, first of all, that Lost people matter to me. God's great passion uh, to see this through and his willingness to go to great lengths to bring about his purpose and his will, uh, even through messengers that are quite imperfect. God has a passion that the nations would know him, and he's willing to extend himself uh, through his chosen delivery method, which for us is us. 
In this situation, it was Jonah the prophet. But for us, church, it's us to get the gospel to those who have never heard. And just how patient is he? Well, Peter, who wasn't the most patient person in the world, puts it like this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires that the peoples of the earth know him. That's seen quite clearly in Genesis 12:3 when he blesses Abraham 2,200 years before Bethlehem. He blesses Abraham and he says to him, Abraham, I'm blessing you, and through you, all the peoples, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The blessing I'm giving to you, Abraham, will bless the nations. Uh, We see it in Psalm 67, and Psalm 117, and Psalm Psalm 98, and 99, and 100, and a lot of other psalms where David invites the nations to come and join in glorious worship of our God, to join with Israel as they worship him. David had a heart. After God's own heart, I think it was rooted somewhere in his vision of what God desired for the peoples of the earth. We see it again in Isaiah 43, where God tells his prophet that Israel is to be a bright and shining light to the nations, to the Gentiles, that they might be able to see, ah, that's what it means when God is with a people. And they would be drawn to that light and attracted and come to worship. And in fact, when Jesus shows up in the temple years later, and finds the court of the Gentiles that was actually built for the very purpose that Isaiah outlined as coming from God, a place where the Gentiles and nations could come and worship him. He finds it full of money changers and full of people uh, doing terrible, greedy things with the people that come to worship. And he gets angry, and he makes the pronouncement, quoting Isaiah. Are you listening to what I'm saying here this morning? Quoting Isaiah, saying, this place was to be a house of prayer for the nations. And you've turned it into a den of robbers. You've not only missed the whole point, but you've made it a sinful place. What a terrible thing to do. God desires that lost people come to repentance. And then also, as we look at Jonah's rekindled passion and calling here, we we find out that God desires that we be the messengers, that we are the messengers. Now, for years, I read Second uh, Peter three nine the quote the text I just quoted to you you know God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance the first part of that said he's not slow as some count slowness but is patient with you well I always just thought the you there was talking about the people out there that are taking a while to figure out the gospel ah who was Peter writing to Peter was writing to the saints he was writing to Christians. And what he's saying there is that God is being patient with you, church. God is being patient with you, messengers of the gospel, so that people that do not know him can come and know him. He is patient toward you. We have to have clarity about what it is that God is calling the church to do. Are we called to be good people in our community? Of course we are. Are we called to minister to the broken and the hurting and the downtrodden? Yes, of course we are. Are we called to be Jesus in the context that we find ourselves? Of course we are. That's, that should flow out of us as naturally as the presence of the Lord in our lives. <laughs> Amen? That should just be like, okay, I can see Jesus living in you because you are following him. But we are also called to speak. To speak. You will be my witnesses. You will testify of me. We are called to preach the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to testify, to bear witness of him. 
When Carol and I go to Japan, we go to Japan semi-frequently to visit a group there called Mustard Seed Network, and they've planted three churches in urban Japan, and they're planting a fourth one now in Kyoto. And every Sunday, what big commitment they have, a deep commitment they have, is that every Sunday the gospel will be preached in their services because people come in all the time to see what's happening in this place and to participate in the worship and to take part in what's happening. And and they have never heard the gospel at all. Many of them don't know what, who, what, quite literally is what they would say, what Jesus is. They have no clue. And you go, what? I mean, what about the Internet? And what about, I mean, seriously, in Japan, it's not like, yeah, seriously, in a place where the population, the Christian population in urban Japan is like this. We took some students over there last uh, March, and uh, Jay Greer said, I've got a little exercise for you to get you kind of oriented here in Osaka. And what I want you to do, among other things, is to go out and just stand in Osaka Station and let the river of humanity go past you. This you're going to experience there. And I want you to count, each of you count 500 faces. I want you to count 500 faces. We go, man, that's going to take a while. Isn't it? <laughs> no, not at all. It's going to take you about 10 minutes at the most. Count 500 faces. We, we all thought, okay, this is an exercise in like the density of population. The significance of how many people live here is pretty obvious. Well, when we later, as we sat down to, per, to uh, process what it, we'd been doing, he said, the reason I had you count 500 faces is this. That's how many people you would meet in Osaka before you meet one believer. 0.2%. One in 500. In Japan, the need is great for the messenger, and they are messaging the gospel there, and they are seeing fruit Christian here in Tulsa, what I I would say to you is the same thing I would say to Carol and myself and the Christians in Joplin is open your homes to the nations that are here among you. Open your hearts to the peoples that God is literally sending into our world who have not even heard the gospel for the first time. You go, well, is anybody like that around? How do we know until we start speaking? (laughs) Said something there. Oh, man. You, you go, you're a guest preacher. Why don't you just go on back home because you're bugging us? Yeah. Well, I get to do that, see, and then Brian can pick up the pieces. No, seriously, seriously, folks, this is what the world is waiting to hear, the good news of Jesus. And so often, well, number two, number two, first of all, we see the rekindled uh, mission of Jonah. Then we see the obedience of Jonah. Jonah does what God asked him to do. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, and according to the word of the Lord, and now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out. This is his message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now God had told Jonah, okay, I'm going to give you the message. Here's the message. 40 days, and Nineveh is overthrown. <laughs> repent. Repent. Is, repentance is the message. I mean, that message is, what would you call it? Pithy? I mean, it's like, doom. You want to know what you need to do? This is what you need to do, Nineveh. Now, if I'd been Jonah, and if that was the sum substance of what God told me to tell them, it's like, uh, can you give me like an opening illustration or something? I mean, this is a little bit, ugh. Repent, because if you don't, it's, it's going to be very bad here in a little over a month. And uh, Jonah just says, okay. In fact, you're going to find out a little later 
in chapter 4 about Jonah's heart for this whole thing, which wasn't all that great. But Jonah doesn't disobey. He just simply is obedient. Now, when you think about his obedience, first of all, the size of the task he was being asked to do was not, was not small. Nineveh was a huge city. It was a very large city. In ancient times, it, was, it dwarfed uh, many other cities in the region. Uh, the wording that's used here could mean that it meant a three-day three walk through the city. It could, some scholars say what, what that actually means is to walk around the city would have taken three days. Others say it meant how long Jonah would have taken to literally go and preach in the whole city. Um, I think essentially the message is the same. It's like a great big place. Anybody reading this in those days would have known, oh yeah, it's a big place. Not surprisingly, God is saying, my heart is for a great big city. The closing words of Jonah, the book of Jonah, I would draw your attention to next week. But for right now, let me just say that God, the cities of the world matter to God. Did you know that over 50% of the world's population lives in the cities, the large cities of the world? In fact, it's 51%. 100 years ago... 100 years ago, the percentage of humanity that lived in the large cities of the world was 14%. 200 years ago, it was 4%, which meant everybody was doing agriculture, which isn't bad, but that's what the world looked like. The world looks much different today, much different today. And the prediction is is that by the end of this century, the percentage of people living in the city will be way over 75%. God's heart for the cities is not changing. Carol and I lived in Santiago, Chile, and hablamos español, and so some, that comes in handy, I've found, in Joplin. But uh, uh, we lived in Santiago, Chile. When we went there, it was 4 million people. <laughs> the biggest city I'd ever lived in, that's for sure. Joplin's 40,000. Tulsa, I thought, was, whoa. You know? And so we went to Santiago, big city. Uh, we loved living in the city. It was very energizing. Today, that city is 7 million people. It's grown 3 million people in just the last 20, 30 years. And uh, when we lived there... It'd take, honey, how long it'd take to drive across Santiago? Drive with a, on a fairly fast road, take, it could take an hour easily, if not longer. It's a big city. Uh, walking, three days? <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I can see what, what God is saying here, but what, more importantly what he's saying is that where you find people, you find my heart. Are you listening to what I'm saying? Where you find people, you find my heart. The treasure of heaven, people, I believe, in Scripture, and I can prove this from Scripture, I think, the treasure of heaven is not gold and pearls and things like that. The treasure of heaven is humanity. The treasure of of heaven is people. Jesus, with his own blood, purchased men from every nation, tribes, tongue, and language, it tells us in Revelation chapter 5. The most precious thing in the universe, the blood of Jesus Christ, is used to purchase people. People are what matter to God. People, wherever you find them and where where you find them densely populated, God's heart you're going to find there as well. So the cities, yeah, Jonah, be obedient, go to the city. And being obedient also meant that Jonah was done fighting with God. Now, it sounds like a dumb thing to say, but fighting with God is not a good idea. So how many of you have learned that? <laughs> I'm just talking autobiographically. I'm sure you're way past all this. But uh, I've fought with God on lots of things. Like, no, I don't want to do that. 
You know, we can choose to be obedient or not be obedient, we, and we can choose to enjoy the benefits of obedience or suffer the consequences of disobedience. Sometimes being obedient is simply stopping the fight. Because the deal here is con- what I call congruency. You guys know what congruency means. It means alignment. It means lining yourself up. It means like getting in alignment with God's will so that my will is flowing through that channel and I'm what I'm doing with my life has everything to do with what he's doing anyway. I mean, why would I choose to do anything else? Because I'm stupid, that's why. I mean, I always like the story about the captain, the Navy captain. You guys probably heard this, but it's okay. I still like it. The Navy captain uh, of a battleship who was accustomed to everybody doing what he said, and that's appropriate if you're a captain of a battleship, but the story's told about this battleship being at sea on routine maneuvers under heavy weather, and the captain's on the bridge because of he's concerned about the safety of the ship and of the crew. And when he's doing this, uh, the lookout on the bridge shouts, Captain, there's a light bearing on the, on the starboard bow. And the captain shoots back to the, to the seaman. He says, is it stationary or is it moving astern? And the lookout said, sir, it's stationary. So that meant that the battleship was on a dangerous collision course with this other ship, and the captain immediately orders a signalman to send out a signal saying, we are on a collision course. I advise you to change your course by 20 degrees to the east. And so the response comes back, you know how they do with the lights. The response comes back, and it just simply says, you change your course 20 degrees west. Now, the captain doesn't like that. You know, he's a captain, and so... He's irritated by the arrogance of that response, and he says, send this message. I am a captain. You change your course 20 degrees east. The response came back that said, I am a, I am a second-class seaman. You change your course 20 degrees west. Now the captain's not just upset. He's furious, and he shouts at the signalman, and he says, send back a final message. I am a battleship. Change your course 20 degrees east now. And back comes the response. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> so, the cha- so the captain ran the ship into the lighthouse. No, <laughs> the captain changed his course. Okay? What do you call that? You call that congruency. Congruency. Let me ask you this question. What will you do with what you know is true? What will you do with what you know is true? Jonah found out that when he aligned himself with God's will and God's purpose, that things went a lot better. And more importantly, far more importantly than that, they were much more meaningful. The issue for us is never a lack of comprehension. It's almost all, at least with me, it's almost always a lack of obedience. I can hear you, God. I just don't want to do it. So, can I tell you a little story? (laughs) I think it's okay if I tell this story. She's wiggling her eyebrows at me. Not long ago in Joplin, this is well, a little while ago, I met the imam of Joplin. The imam is the guy over the mosque, you know, and Joplin has a small mosque out by the hospital area. And uh, I met him. He's really a friendly guy. He's from Indonesia, and we talked, and and I, I kind of tried to, like, set something up for the future. Like, I think... Things about the Lord or about God are important. I'd like to visit with you more. He said, me too. I think the same thing. I thought, oh, well, maybe we could have a conversation here. So I said, sometime let's have coffee and we can talk some more. And then I didn't do anything about it. (laughs) 
for quite a while, actually, until one morning when I'm opening the Word, and you know what happens when you start doing that, opening the Word, and uh, it's like, I don't know, I'm not trying to be weird, but it's like, Chris, you know what to do. (laughs) What? I don't want to do that. You've got his phone number. (laughs) Text the man. So I did. I just stopped and stopped my Devo and everything. Crazy. (laughs) Are you listening to me this morning? I hope you're paying attention. Yeah. I just stopped what I was doing, got out my phone, texted uh, Lamudin is his name, and said, hey, this is Chris DeWell, you know, we met, blah, 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 how about coffee? Text me right back and said, that'd be great. I invite you to the mosque next Friday, and I'll make you special Indonesian coffee. I go, okay. And then we had numerous conversations after that. You know, I'd like to tell you that he jumped in the baptistry. That didn't happen. But, but uh, we, had, we opened the Bible and he opened his heart, and we talked about things, and he told me some crazy stuff too, but it's, it was a conversation. Yeah. Maybe it's just me, you know. The issue isn't what I know. The issue is what I'm going to do about it. Then you see number three here. You see a repentant city, and this is the surprising part. So Jonah does what God asks him to do, goes and gives his message. It's not a nice message. And uh, the people of Nineveh believed God. Whoa. I didn't think they would. That's why I didn't ever say anything. (laughs) They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth, sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let not man or beast be covered. Let man or beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. In verse nine, such a precious verse. Pay attention to it. It says this: Who knows? This is coming from a pagan, a pagan king. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not. Perish, may not perish, is found somewhere else in the Bible. Simple obedience can bring shocking results. What happens next? Some of the craziest verses in Scripture. The bloodthirsty Assyrians that everyone was afraid of, they repent. Crazy. There's such a great illustration of how we do not know what is going on in someone's heart when we are just simply being called to be obedient to God. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what their story is. 99% of the time, we have no idea what's happening there. We're just simply called on to show the love of Christ, to be the love of Christ, to speak the love of Christ. And when we do, crazy stuff happens sometimes. We have no idea the circumstances that have come into someone else's world and how God has set the table for them. I give you Cornelius, for example, in Scripture, and I give you the church planting movements that have arisen in the last... 10, 15 years among the Muslim people groups of the world that have far eclipsed any church planting that's ever happened up to this point in history. The scope and the scale and the spectrum of the growth of the church planting movements, if you want to know more about that, read David Garrison's study on this called A Wind of Change in the House of Islam, where he's done extensive research around the world and has found There are more church planting movements, not just churches being planted, but whole movements of churches being planted in the Muslim world 
70 times more than what has ever been seen before in all of history. We show up, we speak, and we live the truth, and God does the rest. Most of the time, if you're like me, most of the time we talk ourselves out of doing what God is wanting to have done before we ever even think about showing up. Oh, they're not going to listen. Oh, there's, that's not going to go anywhere. Oh, that's an exercise in futility. Oh, that can't be done. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and then we wonder why God isn't acting. So why did the Ninevites repent? That's one of the most interesting aspects of this. I mean, it does sound crazy, doesn't it? I mean, the, this weird Jewish prophet shows up and says bad things in, short, in very pithy statements, <laughs> and... And everybody goes, oh, we need to change our lives. We need to put on sackcloth and ashes. We need to, something happened here. Something crazy happened. And so I'm, I'm just, you, I'm like you. I asked the question, what, what, what provoked that kind of response? Was it like a deep commitment? Did they have an understanding of who God was? There's a lot of speculation when you start looking into this. I remember hearing a guy one time who said, well, Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Fish had a lot of stomach acid in it, and so Jonah was probably bleached white when he came out. I mean, he would have been a weird dude, you know, and shows up in the city, repent. And they all go, whoa, maybe we ought to... Well, the problem, first problem with that is it's not in the Bible, which is a big problem. Uh, it's interesting, it's speculation. Another piece of speculation I've heard people say is that somebody saw him get spit out on the shore by the fish. And so it's like, whoa, that didn't happen every day. Maybe I should pay attention to what this guy's got to say. And there's a little problem with that because Nineveh is like 500 miles from the beach. So that probably didn't happen either, and it's not in the Bible. A third one, though, that is kind of interesting is that um, there's strong historical evidence that there was a full-on solar eclipse right around the time Jonah uh, would have been alive and could very possibly have been in Nineveh uh, when this took place. Um, there's a guy named Donald Weissman who is a former curator of the British Museum in London, so he's not a scholastic slouch, and he wrote uh, scholarly journal articles about this and said that there was a total eclipse in Nineveh on June 15, 763 B.C., and that the dramatic reaction of the people could have been related to that event. And he goes on to say that they even had writing about what happens when the sun is darkened and how that would mean Assyria should change its course and things like that. that I don't know. Again, that's not in the Bible, okay? <laughs> but it is interesting a uh, little backdrop. Scripture doesn't tell us the details or the conditions. It just tells us what happened. Are you good with that? We are simply asked to believe that they did repent. And I find that interesting in and of itself. God doesn't do things the way that we would. He doesn't always explain himself. Have none of you had that experience already in life? He doesn't always explain himself, but he does want us to believe him and to trust him that what he says is true. And I love what the king says there at the end. Who knows? Perhaps God will not punish us and we will not perish. Which brings us to the end of this whole thing. Jonah 3.10, the king's words are fulfilled. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster and he said that he said he would do and he did not do it. The disaster was averted. The people repented. Jonah did the preaching. Everything seemed to go really, really well. In fact, this is one of the few prophets in the Old Testament that actually had a successful ministry. 
I mean, one of the very few. And uh, not only is it successful, it's like crazy successful. The king becomes, uh, you know, repents and tells the people to repent. What does it mean when it says that God relented? You know, a lot of people go, wait, God knows everything. How is it that he didn't know that? And what does this, does this mean God changes his mind? Let me just go right to the core of it because you guys think that. Like, what, what does that mean? How, could, how is it possible God, if God's omniscient, how can he change his mind? Well, I'd invite you to consider the fact of his whole purpose in sending prophets to begin with. He sends prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet, to his people and to other nations. And he tells them the same message. Turn to me. Stop what you're doing. Turn to me. Follow me. Worship me. This is always his message. God with the prophets, it's like the prophet comes and he says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Please don't do that. If you do that, it's going to be like this and like this and like this. Do not do that. Please return to me. Please come back to God. Please give yourself back to him. Follow him and it will be good. It will be like this and this and this. And did they listen? Almost invariably, this is an exception, but almost invariably they did not. And so the words of the prophets often came true. This is what will happen. Here, it is, a, it is my conviction that this is simply God carrying out his ultimate wish for them. Please do not do this. If you do not turn away from what you are doing, you are on a crash course to destruction. Ezekiel 18.32 says this, says this, the prophet Ezekiel, Why will you die, O house of Israel? It's the word of the Lord. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live. If you don't, it will be very bad. And describes it in detail. If you do, you will live. God makes it very clear what it is that he would, do, he would do here. The purpose, listen to me, people, the purpose of repentance is always redemption. Always redemption. The purpose of any discipline or correction is always redemption. God's heart is not to wound and to hurt and to belittle and to injure. No, he brings life and he brings healing. The enemy will tell you otherwise about God. The enemy will always impugn the motives of God. It's the first thing he said to a human being. Has God truly said, it's going to be like this, Eve? I wouldn't be so sure. I'd take a look at his motives because the enemy is called the accuser and he accuses God first, always. The other part of this story, though, is that Nineveh did repent, even though they did. It was temporary. Fifty years later, the prophet Nahum predicts the end of Assyria and is exactly what happened 50 years after Jonah, the great battle of Nineveh in 612 B.C., and Nineveh or nor Assyria was ever rebuilt. In fact, you can go visit the ruins of Nineveh, should you wish to do so, in the city of Mosul. You ever hear Mosul? In, this, in the news lately in, 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 uh, in Syria, you can go visit the, uh, the ruins of Nineveh and see what happened to them when they refused to repent. But this morning... And I close with this. This morning I want you to hear the message of Jonah 3. It is this. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our dear friend, I referenced the work in Japan a moment ago. Our dear friend Jay Greer, who uh, has been working there now for seven or eight years, and along with several other uh, church-planting missionaries in Japan, 
told us a story a little while back about how on Christmas Day a few years ago, he asked God for a Christmas present. They'd just been there about a year. Uh, Caitlin had just given birth to one of their children. Uh, her parents were literally flying into Japan. They flew into Tokyo. They were living in Nagoya a little ways away. Jay was going to go to Tokyo to pick them up and bring them back, you know, to share in the joy of the new baby. And uh, that morning in his devotions, he just prayed this prayer. He said, God, um, I'd like to ask you for a Christmas present. <laughs> you know, weird, but okay. I'd like to ask you for a Christmas present. And he said this. He said this to the Lord. He said, we've been living here, as you know, we've been living and studying Japanese here now for over a year. And uh, I still haven't yet had the opportunity to share the gospel with anyone in Japanese. My request to you, Lord, is that you give me that opportunity. Could you give me an opportunity to speak to someone about the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel in the Japanese language? And so he went, left, left the house, went down to the train station, bought his ticket on the bullet train. You know, it goes 180 miles an hour. And uh, went and stood in line. In Japan, they're very orderly. Oh, my goodness. You stand right here, and you, get, you walk through the door here, and this train comes up. Shh, there's a door. Door opens. People come out. You go in. Shh, door shuts, and away you go. That's how it works. 180,000 people a day go through the train station where he was standing. So he's standing in line. This voice comes from behind him says, Sir, do you speak English? He looks back, and behind him is this middle-aged lady who's Japanese, and she she, she says, I, I am learning, I've learned English, and I would like to be able to practice my English because I've been away from it for a while. Uh, would, it, would it be okay if I sat by you in the train? We could talk. He said, okay. So he gets on the train, sits down. Her name is Nako, and she sits next to him, and she explains to him that she's a Ph.D., and she lived and worked in Stanford, at Stanford University as a guest lecturer for several years, and uh, she understood something about what it meant to be an American living in Japan, and she wanted to practice her English with him, and so they talked a little bit. Then she looked at him, about halfway to Tokyo, she looks at him and says this. She said, today's Christmas Day, isn't it? This is in Japan. Today's Christmas, because everything else is going on like normal. Today's Christmas Day, isn't it? And he said, yes. And she said, um, you know, even though I lived in the United States for eight years, and this is a shame on American Christians, quite honestly. Even though I lived in the United States for eight years, no one ever explained to me what Christmas was about. I thought, I just figured out it must be some kind of winter holiday. Uh, could you tell me about Christmas? And because I know you're practicing, she literally said this to him without any prompting. And because I know that you are working on your Japanese, could you explain Christmas to me in Japanese? <laughs> hey, did you hear what I just said? <laughs> I'm not sure you did. Did you? Could you explain Christmas to me in Japanese? An exact, almost verbatim answer to his prayer. And so Jay did. He said, it's about Jesus. When he came to earth, it's about him dying on the cross. It's about him rising from the dead. It's about him opening the gates of heaven to whoever wants to go. That's what Christmas is about. And she said, thank you. <laughs> And she went her way, and he went his. Again, I'd like to tell you, she, they got to the fountain there in the train station, and he baptized her, but that didn't happen. But nonetheless, the gospel was planted. You see, the issue isn't, is, usually isn't with me knowing, not knowing what it is, what to do. It's just simply asking the Lord. God's looking for obedient servants, even if he has to call them twice.
who will simply do what he has said to do. His heart for the nations, many of, of them are ready to respond if only someone will engage them. And on a personal level, on a personal level, brothers and sisters, as God is calling, if God is calling you to do something you know you should do but have been avoiding, I would urge you to not do that. Are there words that you need to speak to someone that only you can speak? Are there words of forgiveness that you need to either speak or seek with someone that you know very well? How many people are waiting, waiting to hear the good news about Jesus, waiting to receive the gospel, waiting for someone to show them kindness instead of rejection, waiting for someone to see them as human beings? How many people are waiting? Let's obey the voice of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, this morning I thank you for your word. Lord, you know me, and you know, Father, forgive me if I've misrepresented myself to these people, but you know how much I I need to have you make it clear to me so that even I can understand it. I thank you for the message of Jonah, Lord. I thank you for your passion for lost people. I thank you for your passion for the nations. Father, I pray that you would teach us to engage our lives in whatever way so that we can align ourselves with your heart, with your will, with with what it is that you are now doing and are bringing to completion here in history and in time. Lord, we want to be a part of that. I thank you for these brothers and sisters because I know that they are doing that very thing here in Tulsa and around the world. Lord, I pray you would bless them so that they can be a blessing to one another and to the lost people here in Tulsa and to the nations, Father. Bless them as they pursue you with all their heart. Lord, we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.